Welcome to the Sports Up Podcast, where we feature groundbreaking leaders in sports and share their inspiring stories. Now, let's get started with the show. This episode is brought to you by me, Meredith Sims. My biggest personal and professional passion is to be one of the top female leaders in sports broadcasting, a typically male-dominated industry. I started this podcast to share inspiring stories. One of my goals is to intern for a professional sports team. So if you're listening and you know of someone I should connect with, please email me because I'm willing to work super hard. Or if you know of an inspiring female leader, email me at meredith at sportsuppodcast.com. I'm always looking for more great guests to feature. Visit sportsuppodcast.com today to check out more episodes. For today's episode, I have two guests here, Erica Beesler and Lauren Greenberg. Erica and Lauren played softball together at Dartmouth College, graduating in 1993. Lauren and Erica have recently been recognized for their dedication to equality in sports, which we will dive deeper into during our conversation. Now Erica is the Associate Director of Market Intelligence at Harvard Business School, and Lauren works as Deputy General Counsel at White and Case LLP. Thank you, Lauren and Erica, for coming on today. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. All right. So I think the first thing I wanted to start off by asking the both of you is really just how much of a presence sports were throughout your childhood, whether that be softball specifically or sports in general, and how you ended up deciding to pursue sports in college. I'll let Erica go first. Um, I came from a pretty active family, so we were always doing something, even if it wasn't organized sports, um, skiing, water skiing, um, as well as, you know, softball, basketball, and some of the other more traditional sports. Um, I didn't discover softball in particular until I think fourth grade when my older sister played on a team. And I remember being on the sidelines and just watching the game and feeling magnetically pulled towards it. Like I just couldn't wait to get my turn out there. And so um, fifth grade was the first year that my mom signed me up. And I joined a team and um, never looked back after that. I guess similar to Erica. In fact, I don't recall Erica and I were talking about this, but our my childhood, I guess, was somewhat similar. We um, were an active family and we would go, we had a couple dogs and we would go hiking on the weekends and biking and as just as a family would do things, skiing in the winter. I grew up playing soccer and softball and skiing. Um, my dad, when I was very young, was my soccer coach. Um, and so I sort of used to that and, and he and I would, he's the one who taught me how to throw a baseball and was very adamant. I don't want, you know, don't throw like a girl. And so he was very, um, he would correct me on my form. And I was really interested in learning all the rules. Like I would watch professional sports, particularly baseball on TV. And I'd always be asking my dad, why did they do that? What was that called? And he would get frustrated and say, just watch the game. Um, but I was really into the rules and um, we had a, uh, belonged to a synagogue and we had a temple um, softball team for the adults and it was mainly men. And I would keep the books. Like I would keep all the stats about hits and just everything. And I really learned the sport um, significantly that way and just really enjoyed playing both softball and soccer. And I did throughout high school and then in college. So soccer, I didn't play on any um you know, I played just on sort of the intramural team with the co-ed with the boys. So awesome. You know, it wasn't recognized as a varsity sport, correct? When you guys first got there? No, there actually wasn't any team when we got there. Okay. And, uh, you know, I have to say when, when, uh, at least when I arrived on campus, I, I wasn't necessarily looking to be part of any widespread change. I just wanted to continue playing a game that I had loved and played competitively in high school. And, uh, you know, I went down to the gym um, to find out sort of how to get involved and uh, learn there was no team. There actually had been a team. Um, this was 1989. And I guess the first team had started in 1981 um, and, and had had um, some success and players and coaches. Um, and then uh, the leaders of the team graduated and the, uh, the coach moved away and the team sort of went away and it came back for a year, a couple of years prior to our matriculation. But by the time we got there, there was no team at all. So when I went down to the gym, I was uh, 
set up with the club advisor who said, you know, there's there's been some some interest in the past, not necessarily sustained interest. My recommendation to you is to set up a meeting somewhere and see if how many other people really want to play. Um, and so I did that. I, you know, paper signs all over campus and set up a meeting in the common room of my dorm. And among the people who came was Lauren. And that's actually how we met that very first meeting in the first weeks of our first year at Dartmouth. And um, there did look to be enough sustained interest to start a team at that point. And so we gathered up the dusty old equipment that was left over from the prior club teams and, you know, started running practices and um, just trying to get a schedule going um, with some consistent turnout. Awesome. So you get this team together. So at that point, were you recognized as a club team on campus or what was it at that point after you got that interest and started getting these games going? So as, as Erica mentioned, we, we didn't know each other and we both had arrived on campus, I guess, with similar interest in just playing, continuing to play softball. We're surprised to learn that there was no opportunity at all, not even you know at a club level or intramural level. Um, so once we had gathered, Erica posted and had this meeting. And at that meeting, I told her I was really interested as well. And if she needed any help to let me know. And um, we started, you know, she took up my offer <laughs> for better or for worse. And um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and there was a lot of interest. The challenge was there were varying degrees of skills. And we were able to have a club team, which didn't mean a whole lot um, that because there wasn't um, there wasn't a, like an intramural league, but it was something that um, we were told if you could get basically any other schools to play you, then that's fine. But we had, I think, I don't even remember, did we even have a budget, Erica? Like it was just so it, like a thousand dollars, I think, was the maximum. Yeah. And I think we collected dues at that point to pay for things like gasoline and um, a new catcher's mask and some other necessities. Right. So basically everything was left to us. Like the school basically said, here's your dusty old equipment from years ago. You can be a club team if you show interest. And we showed that we had a lot of, you know, women interested. And they basically were like, well, go forth and do whatever you want to do. We're, you know, you know, this is what we're providing you. And as in any other club, you get the budget, which is a thousand dollars, which is really not much. And so I remember I got the, um, I just started calling <laughs> athletic directors at um, the schools, you know, the Ivy League, Ivy League schools, as well as local schools, because what I was encountering were, you know, the athletic directors were pretty surprised to be speaking with a freshman student trying to schedule, um, in a, you know, a game. And when I explained the situation, they were willing to play us, but on their terms, which meant they weren't going to travel. They were, you know, they, they would. Um, host us, but that's pretty much it. So we had to come up with everything, which was a plan to get to all these schools, um, which involved finances, which we didn't have. And so um, uh, another player and I took the van test to drive the school. <laughs> the Dartmouth had like a school bus, like it look, literally looked like a yellow, I recall it was like a yellow school bus, but it may have been something slightly different. And maybe it was like a minivan, but in any event, I took the test to drive it and another student, another player and I, so we would take turns, but, and we, as Erica said, we collected dues just to get just enough money to scrape by on, you know, paying for um, supplementing our uniforms because we didn't have enough to outfit everybody. And um, we needed to pay for gas and we never had enough money to stay over. So regardless of how far we drove to play, we had to drive back the same day. Um, and that was basically our first season. It was really a, you know, rough and tumble effort just to try to play. Um, and, and we did, we played <laughs> not very well. And I would say, I would say. add too, like at that point, we weren't trying to be anything more than a club team. We were just, we sort of understood this was the deal when we came in. And this is the nature of a club team. And we were just funneling our efforts into that. I would say it wasn't until sophomore year that our perspective started to change. Right. Well, I think that's true in terms of it being, you know, whether this was, you know, a discrimination issue, that's 100% true. I do recall feel, feeling like 
this is a lot of work to be a club <laughs> team. You know, like I don't think I presumed that other teams had to schedule their games. Like, and I think most of other club teams, there was actually like, it, it was more like an intramural effort within the school. I don't think they played games outside the school. So I remember thinking, this is a lot of work, but we're trying to demonstrate to the school that we have interest and maybe they won't get some more help. But I don't think, you know, and, and I, I recall thinking that I had sort of higher aspirations to have like a school team, but not that there was anything other than what they were telling us, which was there hasn't been sustained interest and we don't know if there is and you all have to demonstrate that there is and that's what we were trying to do. Right. You know, you just mentioned it's a lot of work. So one thing I wanted to ask you both is you guys came in as freshmen, right, and took on this big task. So what was that like coming to a brand new school, living away and, <laughs> and deciding to take on what this task and what kept you going? What made you continue to want to um, put these efforts forward and, and grind it out, especially freshman year? I think a little bit of it was we didn't necessarily know what we were getting into or, 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 um, okay, Lauren's nodding. I didn't know if that was valid for both of us or not. Um, you know, we just wanted to play. And I think at first we were just driven for, by our passion for the game. Um, and, and, you know, as we got further along in, in our endeavors, um, I think, uh, like I had always been interested for sure in women's issues. And I think uh, that really crystallized at Dartmouth as I had the opportunity to start taking like history courses and women's studies courses and really uh, beginning to learn about things like Title IX and, and historical issues in that area. <laughs> and that became a real passion of mine. And so I think when you have, you know, the passion for the game and the passion for gender equity and those two can sort of come together and fuel you um, when you have a challenge of this nature. I'm not sure if I, if we didn't care as much about it, if we would have necessarily kept up the effort that we did. Um, and truly, I think a lot of women find that passion at the intersection of sports and gender equity. So I have a few points on this question. Um, I mean, Erica hit the nail on the head. We did not know freshman year what kind of um, mountain we were climbing. We just wanted to play. And the benefit of softball is that it's a spring sport. So it, although this organizing meeting was right when we started in the fall, we had a time to get acclimated to the school, to get to know each other, try to figure out what was going on and really, you know, understand our um, academics. And as Erica was saying, we just wanted to play. And so our goals were just, let's figure out what we need to do to play. And we was just looked at the task ahead. We didn't have this vision or foresight to realize what it might encounter ultimately. Aside from the passion for the sport, I had, I have an entrepreneurial spirit just that drives me. And so when I was in high school, I started my own baking business, for example, because I had an interest in baking and um, I wanted to buy my first car when I turned 16. And so I had a goal. And so I included that during my um, high school years as uh, something that I want to do. And I achieved my goal and the business actually got kind of big that I had to choose <laughs> between school and business. And so I shut down my business. Um, so anyway, I think that's also what kind of kept me motivated or going is that this seemed very new and interesting and exciting, as well as something that we wanted to play. And I really believed the administration when they said, you just have to show interest and then we'll figure out what we're going to do from there. Um, and, and so I, it seemed like a short term effort and real push to, to demonstrate that there was interest in what we wanted you know, we wanted a team. So it didn't, at freshman year, at least, it didn't seem like it was going to be a long-term endeavor. Yeah. So we talked about freshman year a little bit. So tell me when it started to shift into this bigger, this larger scale um, matter that you decided to take on um, to that bigger scale later on. I think it started with this feeling of unfairness um, where you know, we were doing everything we just described, um, but then looking around and 
probably particularly focusing on the baseball team, uh, which had been around since like 1866 and um, <laughs> had a gorgeous field in the center of campus. And, you know, it just was very well established and funded and well-respected and successful. And, um, you know, you just sort of start to ask yourself the question, what's what's the difference here? You know, why isn't that available to women at Dartmouth like it is for men? And so there was this feeling of unfairness that sort of we were we didn't have a name yet for what it was until I would say uh, I I think I had been taking a women's studies course um, and learned about Title IX for the first time and, you know, probably ran to Lauren's room afterwards to sort of be like, I, you know, I think I think there's something here like I I don't this is not just unfairness. This is discrimination. And we decided it was likely against the law. And so um, we started to do more research at that point and talk to professors. And um, there were some ongoing Title IX complaints and investigations at Brown and Colgate in particular that seemed to really mirror the situation at Dartmouth. Um, And uh, I think it was sometime during sophomore year that we first raised the idea of Title IX with the administration versus just trying to advance the causes of our club team. Yeah, so my recollection is largely the same as Erica's, might be slightly different. Um, and perhaps you're gathering from our from our comments. Um, Erica and I are very different, but we're a great team. And Erica is much more measured and patient than I am. And I was, aside from feeling like it was unfair, I wanted to take some action about it sooner. And Erica was right in telling me, no, it's not the right time. We need to really work with the administration and see, um, you know, explain our viewpoint and see where we go. Um, so I think, and I don't know if it was as early as sophomore year or before or after Erica told me about her women's studies class, but I definitely recall conversations with Erica where I was like, this is wrong and we need to have a team and we, this, they're not listening to us and we need to file something. And I remember Erica thinking I was like running around with fire, my hair on fire, you know, that I was just a little crazy about this. Um, uh, but in hindsight, and now being a lawyer, um, and seeing and having the benefit of hindsight and seeing what we were doing, it was a hundred percent the right decision to wait because as a result, we were building our case unknowingly. We were building our case against the school that ended up being a very, very strong case. And if we had done something at the time that I wanted to, we would not have had that sort of body of evidence that we ended up having. So tell me what happened next. What was the reactions and what what was your plan going forward? So when Erica told me, I think Erica, there was another factor that I remember. Erica had a, so with the Dartmouth plan, which you may be familiar with, I think because your brother goes there, but maybe your audience isn't. The Dartmouth pl- academic plan is there, um, students are on campus studying uh, a quarter according to the seasons. And freshman and senior year, they study the traditional fall, winter, spring quarters. And then they must study their sophomore summer. And that frees up the other quarters for them to fashion their own academic schedule that they want. And what it allows is for students to have internships or paid positions at companies or associations wherever they would like to work during the traditional academic year when there aren't other students vying for those opportunities. And so my recollection, Erica, was that Erica had one of these positions at a law firm and she um, had learned about how to handle or file cases or something like that. And so we were armed with both the women's studies knowledge as well as her experience from that internship. And when when she was talking about Title IX and these other cases, we started speaking with lawyers to try to see if someone would represent us pro bono or for free, since we didn't have barely enough money to pay for our uniforms and travel expenses. We certainly couldn't pay for a lawyer um, and to find, give us advice about whether we had a case and we could not get anyone interested in our cause. 
And so we started just researching it on our own and we were following these cases. We were following, you know, the written opinions. We were reading them and um, the news articles and doing our own um, research as best we could on different Title IX issues with women in athletics. We found the statute um, and we, um, and so we started becoming more assertive with the administration about what, if putting a name on what we felt we were experiencing, which was unfairness. And the reaction was moderated, I think. Um, and they were, the administration was saying, basically, we don't think it's that, but we understand that you have this interest and we're going to try to work with you. There were different comments that we received, I recall vividly, one where we met with our club advisor. So the all the club teams, there was one club advisor who was in the athletic department who would advise the teams on you know whatever it is they needed. And we went to speak with him. And I remember we told him that we felt that this was discrimination and that there was a baseball team and it got funding and all these things and we had nothing. We had to, in fact, we were told to have a bake sale in order to raise money for um, our efforts. And so I remember that in his office sitting there in conversation, he said, you know, even if you're right that this is discrimination, which we don't think it is, but even if you're right, you're not, you're not gonna get a, you might not get a team. And we said, no, why would that be? If we're right, we're gonna team. He said, no, you might, the base, you might get the baseball team cut. Do you two wanna be responsible for getting the baseball team cut. And I remember just feeling so outraged. Like you don't respond to a wrong by making those who are raising the issue feel like they're um, harming somebody else. Um, and it, And I remember I just was sitting there in shock. Like I can't believe that he is, um, you know, almost making us feel like victims again, like making us feel that, that you know, by just raising this, that they're gonna have all these adverse repercussions. I remember Erica, again, the measured one, very calmly, and she doesn't remember it this way, but I remember her saying, no, if the school decides to remedy the situation by cutting the softball team, that's their decision. That's not ours. You if mean by cutting had, the baseball team? Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they decide to remedy the situation by cutting the baseball team, that is the administration's decision, not ours. And if we were given the budgets for everything, we would figure out a way to make it work. Oh, so, gosh. Yeah, she doesn't remember that part, that last part. Yeah, I don't I remember, remember especially that. that last part. Um, <laughs> presumptuous sophomore. Um, but I, I will say, too, there were, you know, um, Dartmouth did have a Title IX office, um, and we went there once we learned of it to, to sort of get some guidance from them. Um, and at that point, we're told, you know, that the case was a bit of a murky one. We didn't get a definitive opinion either way. Um, but we did write a letter to the administration um, and uh, and met with them. And uh, I think it was the summer before our junior year made a proposal about what it would take um, to improve the status and funding of softball. And um, we actually got a, a better response at that point coming back in our junior year, I imagine because of the incorporation of the Title IX discussion um, that they were gonna do what they could to enhance the structure and the quality of the softball club, uh, as long as we were willing to help. And of course there were uh, things that we had to do, continue to show sustained interest and commitment to the program. We had to raise a certain amount of uh, money. We had to find a coach, you know, um, a bunch of different things. But at that point we were pretty heartened that things were moving in the right direction. Yeah. So you, then you're in your junior year, right? And then you're going off to your senior year to graduate. And I read that um, the team wasn't recognized as a varsity sport until 1995, right? So you guys were gone at that point. So as you leave, how much more involved were you? And how did, you, how did it then become to the level of a varsity sport after you left two years later? Well, uh, Lauren, are you going to fill in the time in between? I was going to. Like, there's sure. an important connection to make. Okay, go. Yeah. 
so I would say everybody must recall the time period that we were in. There was not internet, right? The email was not widespread. Dartmouth had developed its own internal email system called Blitzmail. So we had electronic communications, but sort of um, the big way that we communicated or got messages across was through the student newspaper. Um, and that's how we did things. So in our, and, and, and when we had meetings with the administration, which were quite frequent, um, we would keep minutes and we would circulate those to the administration after every single meeting. And we would say, if there, we have documented anything incorrectly, you know, please let us know. And we never got a single response. That's a really key fact for when we ultimately decide to file our complaint because we had all these minutes of all of these meetings that were uncontested that we attached to the complaint. So we, um, uh, as Erica said, after we spoke with the, the in, you know, Title IX office at the school or the EOC office at the school, we um, then reached and we were trying to get lawyers interested and could not. We then reached out to, or Erica reached out to the um, Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, that um, is tasked with implementing and monitoring and overseeing Title IX in academic institutions. And the office that governed Dartmouth was in Boston. And she got connected with someone there who took an interest and was letting us know the types of things that we should look out for or um, that, are, that are important features of Title IX. Um, not really, I didn't get the sense in terms of helping us build our case, but just trying to advise us like, I don't know what you have here. You all seemed wronged. Um, but these are the things that you should be looking out for. And so we, um, in speaking with the administration, we um, continued to raise this issue and, you know, about Title IX. And they were, as Erica was saying, you know, reading from a letter that we received, they were trying to show us more support, but not 100% support. But one of the things they asked for was a three-year transition plan if we were to become a varsity sport. Um, although I believe they couched it as we would become a varsity sport, they gave us more funding as a club sport. Um, they, as although a thousand dollars was the limit for club, they gave us twenty thousand dollars, and so we were able to do a lot more with that in terms of getting and of getting a coach, which we did. We found someone in town who was willing to coach us until it became a varsity um, team, which required recruiting, and he just had a family. He said, "I, I can't do that." So we were we were thrilled to have a coach because. Erica and I were sort of the jack of all trades up to that point, um, including playing and coaching and scheduling and driving and everything else, uh, fundraising. Um, and so we started to get some momentum and felt that the school was um, going to do the right thing and establish a team. Erica also kept in touch with her women's studies professor and was, you know, guided by her a little bit. Um, and we felt encouraged by their commitment to have this three-year transition plan. And so we were so excited. We went to the newspaper, as I said, to get the word out um, that we were finally being recognized and we were going to have a team. And uh, by the way, we needed pitchers <laughs> because we didn't have enough pitchers. Um, and that was in response to that article was the first time the administration had ever contacted us. I think they were always responding to our contact. And the first time they had ever said, I think you got this wrong. And we got into a meeting with them and they said, we didn't agree that you would be a fully funded varsity team. And we were sort of scratching our heads, like, why did you ask for the three-year transition proposal? Like, what is, what is going on here? And that's when we started feeling like maybe it's not, maybe they're not going to do what they say they're going to do. Um, and another I think big point that ultimately came to be a, a really huge point is that each year that we were speaking with the administration, we were asking because they were telling us there's a, you know, we don't have money for you in our budget. And we kept saying, well, how do we get money in the budget for softball? Like, what do we need to do? And they said, well, the trustees approve the budget. And so we will let the trustees know. We'll speak with the trustees and tell them about softball. So every year we were asking, you know, what did the trustees say? And are we in the budget yet? And um, they kept saying, no, sorry, they didn't vote you in the budget. Um, 
And so our senior year, when we felt that they were a bit backtracking, you know, three-year transition proposal, but we're not really committing to a team. And um, we finally insisted on, you know, speaking with the trustees. And the only way we, because we wanted to go to the meeting, the trustee meeting, and they said, students are after the meeting. So my meeting was on a Saturday in the spring, on a Sunday morning, you could always go and have brunch with the trustees, which they had never offered before. We didn't know about that before. And so we said, well, we required the entire team to be at that brunch and we were gonna sit two to a table and bend their ears. You know, we didn't know who, else, what other students had issues or what they were gonna talk about. And it turned out, I think our team was <laughs> the only students there. There maybe were one or two others. Um, but what we learned at that meeting was they had never heard of our plight. They had never heard of us. They had never heard of what we were trying to do. They had never heard of our complaints. They never knew we wanted funding. And while they were very sympathetic, they had approved the day before the budget for that year. And so there was nothing they could do to help us. Yeah. One more thing I want to add um, and, uh, is at this point in time, too, probably um, because of greater awareness of Title IX, the college had also launched their like gender equity study that was really going to um, focus on athletics. And I think part of what we viewed as backtracking on their part was they said they wanted to wait on the recommendations of the committee before sort of deciding what measures needed to be taken, particularly about softball. So that's where we were. Um, uh, I would say senior, that was senior spring. We officially filed our complaint with the Department of Education at that point. Um, and then that, you know, once it was in their hands, we we were in touch with them, but we didn't necessarily have to be on contact uh, on campus. And they conducted their investigation. And um, basically at the outcome of that, um, their, that was, what was it, Lauren, like a year and a half? I guess it was 1995. Yeah, was so we the... filed, yeah, I mean, we filed our complaint in April of 1993. We graduated in May. Um, as Erica said, they had in the fall had created this gender equity committee. And as Erica said, they said they were, you know, focusing on Title IX and athletics. Um, I certainly felt that the timing was significant because we had had, meetings with the school where they were saying, we really don't think you have a case. And we were saying, we think we do. <laughs> and um, and felt that they were hedging their bets, that they could pin any findings on the committee as opposed to our efforts. And if we weren't successful in our efforts, then they might not have to do anything as a result of the committee. So, um, but that's my view. I don't know if Erica shares that view. I was saying that, that another factor was that Erica's women's studies professor was on the gender equity committee so that we had at least one ally there. And we had um, another ally in the administration who gave us um, the financial document about how much was spent on men's sports and the breakdown by sport versus women's sport. And so we had a fair amount of evidence at this point that we felt would support a complaint. And based on our research and our connections with this person at the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights, um, we we filed the complaint in April of 1993, and we attached all of the correspondence and that we had had with the school, including the three-year transition proposal, all of our meeting minutes, um, all sorts of things that we had found and the statute and cases and things like that. And we filed this complaint. Um, I don't recall, Erica, if we ever received any direct response from the school in response to the complaint. I remember that, that the our contact at the Department of Education, of course, told us that they had received it. And we, I also had this odd but coincidental experience where um, I had stayed on campus the summer after my freshman year and worked at the Office of Admissions, um, working with an admissions officer on a new program that they were looking to institute for international students. And I had not seen that person since. And after we filed the complaint, I just happened to bump into him walking across the quad on campus. And he said, Lauren, I have to tell you, I have a friend at the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights in Boston, 
And I haven't talked to him when I got a call out of the blue from him saying that he had, they had received a complaint from two Dartmouth students and it was so well documented that they were either like crazy out of their mind or it was highly credible and they couldn't tell which extreme it was. <laughs> and so he said to him, you know, might you know these students? And so the admissions officer said, well, you know, who are they? And he said, well, Erica Beisler, he said, no, I don't know her. He said, Lauren Greenberg, he said, I do know her. She worked for me, you know, three years ago and she's solid. And so they said, okay. And then he hung up the phone and, you know, you don't know. I mean, I have to think that that helped our credibility. They helped him think about, you know, filing, you know, how to interpret what we had filed. And, um, and Laura, just, can I just, can I just point out to, we signed the comp complaint. We put the plane to get the, com the complaint together, but we did it on behalf of the entire softball team. And every single softball player's name was on that complaint. Right. That's true. But I, I believe that we, I, I know, I think we had asterisks next to our names or something as the, as the main, like the people who were filing the complaint. Um, but Erica's point is well taken because what we had learned from the cases we had studied, um, particularly Colgate, is that when it's filed in individuals' names, if they've graduated, there's no longer a harm. And so that's what happened with Colgate. They found that the school was liable, but they were zero damages because the students had graduated, so there was no harm. And so we decided we, we didn't want that to happen to us. And so we thought about, you know, how can we rectify that problem? We said, well, if we file in the name of the Dartmouth women's varsity softball team and it has an ongoing membership, then there will constantly be an ongoing harm regardless of how long this takes. Um, not knowing that that's a viable legal theory, at the time that we did it. Um, but that is true. That is what we did. Um, and my only point was that, you know, it's a, it's a common adage, but don't burn bridges because you never know when, when things might come, you know, come around. Um, but that's, you know, that's what the, I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back for us to want to file was the trustees meeting where we learned that they never even heard about us for four years, despite the school telling us that they were talking to them about it. And then we had a really humiliating experience where our um, practice time in the field house was uh, double booked with the baseball team and, and um, they refused to let us play. And it was very, a, a bad, embarrassing situation. And that's when we're like, this is just beyond unfair and, and we shouldn't have to experience this. So, um, but I was saying in terms of a reaction, I, we did get calls from the Boston Globe. I remember I filled one. I don't remember Eric if you did, but um, uh, when they got, they learned that we had filed the complaint and wanted to write about it in the paper. And we had anticipated that there might be coverage. And so we had decided we weren't going to speak with any reporters because the main thing is that we wanted the problem solved. We wanted equality for women in athletics at Dartmouth and these opportunities for women to play but we didn't want to harm the school. And unfortunately, Dartmouth has somewhat of a history or pattern of having, um, you know, activism, but it to, that's good, but then it harms the school because there's negative publicity about it. And we wanted to try to straddle that line of trying to bring about change in a positive way, but not harm the school uh, because it would, it would be a hollow victory if we, succeeded but then no women wanted to go play there because they learned that it was such a big problem so um we didn't talk to the globe or other news reporters that we got that contacted us i don't recall getting any you know outreach from the administration at all after we filed the complaint um and then once we graduated i had another interaction with the uh, department of education office civil rights because we had learned from Erica's professor who was sat on the committee that there was a proposal to solve um, a disparity. And um, she presented the proposal to us to review and they did not disclose by name what sports they wanted to do, but in how they wrote about it, they were favoring other sports over softball. And I felt that it was retaliation. Uh, and so I, and I also felt that it was wrong how they were characterizing what the softball needs were and so i wrote another supplement to the complaint attaching that that recommendation and explaining why it was 
wrongfully targeting softball as not the sport that should be added. And then, as Erica said, they the school investigated. I mean, the the Office of Civil Rights investigated for about a year or so. I do remember getting a letter saying that, or a call, I think it was, saying that they had that they had found the school out of compliance with Title IX. We had argued that they were out of compliance by two varsity sports, that one should be softball and they could choose the other one because they had also been telling us all along that even if we're right, volleyball had been waiting in the wings a lot longer than softball. So we might, they would elevate volleyball over softball. So we thought there's two opportunities here. One softball, they can pick whatever they want. If they want volleyball, fine, whatever. We don't, that's up to them. And so on this call from the Department of Education, they said, that they had found them out of compliance by more than two sports. Um, and they were giving the school an opportunity to voluntarily comply or they would go public with the findings, which not only would be harmful to the school, but they would risk losing all of their federal funding dollars, which is in the millions. Um, and so the school then instituted softball, volleyball, and several JV sports to resolve the complaint. And, um, and, acknowledge that the gender equity committee had come up with these findings. So you go through this long process, seems like a long, long process with a lot of work um, and a lot of time put into it. So what was it like when you found out that that moment of finally what you wanted kind of happened, they had to comply and they had to make change at um, the school that you'd been going to for the past four years. Um, what was that moment like? Um, I, I can jump in and speak for myself here, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it was hard after four or five years at that point not to be have a slightly wait and see sort of attitude. We were happy. You know, we believed in the findings, um, but we had been encouraged in the past and hadn't seen things come to fruition. So. For me, um, you know, I it was gratifying. It sort of it was closure to our efforts for sure. And over the years, um, I kind of watched the program grow from afar, and it did indeed grow with coaches. They they built a new facility. Uh, they've done recruiting, and they actually won three Ivy League titles, um, which was amazing. So they had great success, but. Um, it did feel like watching from afar for a while. And then um, on the 25th anniversary of the program, just a few years ago, uh, we got an email from one of our teammates who's now on the board of the Friends of Softball asking if we would want to come back and, and um, for the, the alumni celebration of the 25th anniversary and sort of tell our story um, at the banquet dinner. And um, we did speak. Um, and I think that was the experience 25 years later that really brought it home for me. You know, we we had a chance to go to some games against Harvard that weekend. And um, we spent some time with the current players as well as people from our era. The families of the players were there. And it was just amazing to be with some of the people we've never met before who love the program and like were committed to it and were benefiting from it um, like it it really took a little bit um, of coming to terms uh, with it. I would say, you know, when one of the hardest things about our efforts, I would say, is that we we were doing it because we wanted women to have the chance to play softball, of course. But like, we were also doing it to better a place that we loved. We loved Dartmouth, and by the end, perhaps that lack of recognition made it feel like maybe the place didn't love us back the way we loved Dartmouth. And I think 25 years later, that reception that we got at that dinner in particular, it just, it sort of all came full circle to me. It was really quite overwhelming. I think, I mean, I, I echo a lot of what Erica said. It, at the time that we learned that they, that we had succeeded, um, it felt a little, what's the right word? It was a little bit of a letdown. I mean, we were ecstatic. There was a team. It did not feel let down that I didn't get to play in a, on a varsity team. It wasn't about me. It was that I felt the school had sort of gotten off the hook because 
they had done a really bad and wrong thing for a long time. And we had highlighted the unfairness and the injustice. And by creating this gender equity committee, they were able to, on one hand, save face and say that these remedies were a result of the committee's findings. But in the same time, it mooted out the complaint. And so there was no official findings. There was nothing public, which we didn't want that harm. But that's sort of where the letdown feeling came from, is that there has been a big wrong here that was being brushed under the rug. And while I didn't want it to harm women, I also wanted it to be um, a learning point and a lesson that darkness should be held accountable so that they don't do it in the future. And that um, other women or minorities or whomever else might be discriminated against won't experience this. And unfortunately, there has been a recent Title IX complaint in the last year or two against Dartmouth, again in athletics, for their um, treatment of the, the women's golf team. Yep. And that's where it upsets me because I feel in some way the way our complaint was resolved didn't give that um, didn't require Dartmouth to be accountable publicly in a way that might have prevented the golf team from experiencing what they did or any other, um, you know, people who might be discriminated against. Now, that's not to say that Dartmouth is a terrible place. I mean, I think Dartmouth, they try really hard. I think it's a great academic institution. The professors are amazing. I think they do a lot of wonderful things. But as in any huge institution um, and government, there need to be checks and balances. And if people are unaware of what they need to be checking and balancing, then it doesn't work seamlessly. So that was my sort of, I guess, additional feeling with what happened at the time. And I remember, you know, speaking to my parents like, this is great, but it's just, they, you know, this needs to come to light. And I remember my parents saying, no, let, you know, let them stay face, let, you know, let them go on and heal and bring in students and, you know, the best result will be have a varsity, you know, varsity softball team and other women's sports that succeed, which has happened. But I do agree with Erica that finally, you know, going public in a small way, we spoke to the Dartmouth women's softball team. Um, but that was enough to really, I mean, again, after 25 years and a lot of the players involved have either passed away or moved on and um, aren't there anymore. But uh, it was a way for us to kind of see the fruits of our labors and how well the team has done and to at least in that small room um, be acknowledged for all of the efforts that we and the rest of the team did to make it happen. And I would say that the school is this year is the Title IX anniversary, 50th anniversary. And so we, I have been invited, um, I'm trying to get Enerica invited also <laughs> that to speak at, um, at more broadly to the student body and student athletic body at Dartmouth, not just the softball team, about our experience. And so I'm hoping little by little that that it'll become, again, more widespread, not for personal acknowledgement for Erica and me, although I think the efforts were tremendous, but that's not the reason. The reason, as I said, is to really have these checks and balances in place and hold the school accountable for doing the right thing always and going forward and being um, receptive to immediate complaints or comments from those feeling that it's not happening properly. That's the reason for having you know, other people know. And I would say to the school's credit, they did. And during Women's History Month this year, when was it? In March, Erica, or April or February? But they tweeted um, uh, acknowledging our efforts. I saw that. Um, yeah. And, um, and also, I think, Facebook message. And so they're slowly, and I think, as more women are getting involved in the administration and athletics, I think they're they're um, acknowledging that that there had been an issue and, and recognizing that they need to do better. Just kind of stepping out onto a bigger picture, um, I think my last main point to ask you both about is maybe touch on how this experience has kind of stayed with you and, and, you know, maybe guided you or, or stuck with you in your new professions or your professions that you're, you're pursuing now and continuing to do. How has this experience from back in college continue to stay with you? It taught me a couple of things, I would say, um, in, in a broader sense. I, it taught me strategic thinking. Uh, at, at Dartmouth, Lauren and I spent a lot of time figuring out the order of things 
and like who to speak with, when, who is an ally, when to work with in the system, when to go outside the college to the Department of Education. Um, and I think I discovered a real interest in this sort of thinking and um, I've used it in um, different contexts, I would say throughout my career. So that's, um, that's one thing. And then um, another is it really taught me to trust my gut. You know, we were told many times, but in different ways, <laughs> by people in authority that we were wrong, we were short-sighted, maybe self-focused. And, you know, uh, Lauren and I would regroup after these conversations and discuss and ultimately decide, no, uh, we were unconvinced by their arguments and, and we would push on. Um, and eventually, you know, got validation from the Department of Education that, that we were right. And so um, that was that was a great lesson to, to learn early on in life. Yeah, I mean, that that last lesson there is a really, really important one, because you have to recall that we were, you know, college students. We were in our early 20s. We didn't, you know, we were responding and communicating with well-experienced administrators and adults. You know, I mean, technically we were adults, but we we were still maturing. We weren't really, you know, hadn't fully come into our own confident selves and so it was a really it took a lot of strength of conviction and purpose um and i think that doing it as a pair was essential uh because i think if we had been solo doing it we would have been overwhelmed with the reaction that we were not thinking correctly um so it was a real it was a it took a lot as i said a strength of conviction and purpose to say we really do think we're right here and we're gonna pursue this and, and see. And, um, and, and it was extremely validating uh, to find out that we were. In terms of its impact on my life, I mean, gave me my profession. And I, I remember thinking about what I wanted to do after Dartmouth and telling my parents, I wanna do whatever the softball thing was, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> and uh, you know my parents are like well that's a lawyer that's not a lawyer you know I didn't know any lawyers and, yeah that's a lawyer and so I actually took two years off between Dartmouth and law school to work at law firms to see what lawyers did and if that is what in fact what the softball thing was um so I you know I never actually went into civil rights as a practice <laughs> uh but it is it did illuminate my career path for me well, thank you, Erica and Lauren, for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Your story is really inspiring and, and your words were um, really touching and your story is touching as well. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it for having us. Thanks for listening to the Sports Up podcast. We'll see you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future Sports Up episodes.